I'd like us to read from the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 35, verses 3 to 10. The reason we're going to read from Isaiah is that uh, Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, had the scriptures of the Old Testament opened in front of him. And so much of what he writes explicitly, implicitly in his text, Matthew, refers to these Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And this is one of them. So let's read Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 to 10. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. They shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And then, just before we turn to Matthew, let me read a couple of verses from earlier in Isaiah. Just let me read them to you rather than you turn to them. They're from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Now, Matthew, his eyewitness account of Jesus' life and ministry, chapter 9, verse 18, and you'll find that on page 814. I want you to imagine Matthew writing this. He'd seen it, he'd heard it, and he's got Isaiah there with him, the prophecy, and all of it is fulfilled in Jesus. So, Matthew 9, verse 18, while Jesus was saying these things, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. 
And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When Jesus entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. When the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now, what a, an astonishing record that is, as Jesus cures a woman with incurable, debilitating illness, and then takes the hand of a dead child and brings her back to life. This is one of the passages in the Gospels that brings us closer to the raw anguish of humanity than any other. And so we need God's help, both to face it and to face Jesus. Let's do that. Lord Jesus, we humbly pray that your Holy Spirit will convict us of our need of you, of our need of the salvation that you freely offer to all who will believe in you, and of the kingdom to come where stuff like this that you displayed on the earth when you came will be what characterizes all of eternity. No more death or sickness or crying or pain or tears. No more valleys or shadows. Convict us by your Holy Spirit of who you are and all your power and your compassion and your tenderness that we might, for the first time or Again, fall at your feet in adoration, resting in your love and grace and finding in you all the confidence we need and all the motivation we need and all the urgency we need to engage in your mission, to tell people of you. And we ask this in your name and for your sake. Amen. Now, three simple headings. They're on the service sheet if you want to take some notes. Firstly, the identity and authority of Jesus. Now, these miracles in Matthew that we read a few moments ago have been described. I think it was J.C. Ryle uh, who described them as the desperation miracles. 
Such is the extent of suffering and anguish and desperation they describe. Just read with me again from verse 18. While Jesus was speaking, a ruler came in and knelt before him. Think of somebody in prominent public life, maybe a politician, a public figure, a business leader, who rarely in life would fall to his knees in desperation for anything, who rarely would be seen to be anything other than the authority figure he is. And yet he comes to Jesus on his knees in desperation, which we can understand. He didn't care what people thought. He didn't care for his reputation. He was just a father in desperation whose child had died. Many of you will remember when Gordon Brown, former prime minister, and Sarah Brown, his wife, had a child who died, a very little child who was born and died in the hospital here in Edinburgh. And all the normal protocols of politics and public life were pushed to one side for a few days at least. You'll remember recently when the Labour politician was killed and all the protocols and all the stuff that matters is seen to no longer matter and there's just grieving humanity. This ruler came in and knelt before Jesus saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now just pause and listen to that again. My daughter has just died, but come and touch her and she will live. That's an astonishingly direct, simple statement. She's just died, but she will live. She's dead, but she will live. If just you will touch her. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples, Matthew, walking behind. Obviously, he saw this. He wrote this down. It's not hard for us to imagine the emotion, the drama of this. The ruler, this father, urging Jesus to hurry. Come on, Jesus, you've got to hurry. But on the way to the ruler's house, a woman, verse 20, who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years, came up behind and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. An incurable, debilitating illness, not only the physical suffering, and we can imagine uh, what that would be, but almost certainly because of her condition, the ceremonial uncleanliness of the woman, every bed that she lay on would have been uh, designated unclean, every chair that she sat on, every person that she touched, Jesus touched her. And in an instant, she was cured. In both these accounts, not least here with this woman who touched his cloak, Jesus' compassion and love and tenderness, take heart, daughter, is astonishing. But what an agonizing delay it must have been for that dad. But Jesus does come to his house, and when he came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowds making a commotion, 
Now, they are the professional mourners. That was a common practice in the ancient world and is still a common practice in many countries of the world today. And including the detail of the flute players and the mourners, Matthew is making point that she is dead. These people are professionals. You hired them. It's their job. They began their mourning and their playing of music around the corpse. The equivalent today might be the undertakers who come and uh, lay out the body to take it away to the mortuary. Matthew is making the point that she is dead. But Jesus says, no, she's not. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. Go away, that is, to the professional mourners. He's telling them to leave the house because she is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. That's not a great translation. The word is they mocked him, not because it is funny. It's just absurd. In fact, it's awful. Imagine if I went into a house, as I do from time to time, and the undertakers are there laying out the body and dressing the body and about to put it in the coffin. And I walked into the undertakers and said, excuse me, uh, she's asleep. She's not dead. I mean, for one thing, if any of the family were in the room, would that not be deeply offensive? And the undertakers would get back into their car with a body and they would say, what a lunatic. But Jesus says she's not dead. I mean, is she dead or is she not dead? She is dead. But Jesus' point is that death is not the final word. Jesus is not disputing her being dead. He is disputing the finality of her death. And when he had put the crowd outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. Astonishing power over death. Astonishing tenderness as he took her by the hand. And the reports of this went through all that district. No wonder. <laughs> I'd love to, maybe we can ask them one day, all the people that Jesus healed in these dramatic ways when he walked on the earth, how they would have reflected in later life on these things. We can ask them one day. Reading on in Matthew's narrative, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And then verse 32, They were going away. Behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Now, all of this is recorded because Jesus did it. Now, let me just pause there and uh, bring to your mind a comment I made in last week's uh, sermon that led to uh, a very heartfelt discussion at the end of the service. 
And the comment I made was that Jesus did these things. I made the comment, I think, that they are not faith stories. Jesus did not tell Matthew to write down a story about him raising a child from the dead when it didn't happen. I mean, that would be cruel. It would be absurd. When Jesus stood on the prow of the boat and took the force out of the wind and the swell out of the waves, that's not a faith story. It's not about the storms in my life that Jesus might quell if I believe in him. It's about someone standing in the middle of a lake about the size of the Irish Sea in a force eight gale with a swell and the spray splashing over the boat and removing the wind and the waves and bringing flat calm with the words, be still. If these things did not happen as Jesus described, there is no hope for you and I standing at a graveside. And the conversation I had last week, I could see it in their eyes when I said that in the service. Are you really saying that these things are true? Because my minister has said to me all my life that they are just stories made up to give us help in life. And I said, I am. And I said to them, what difference will it make when you stand at your graveside of a friend? Now let me, if you're not a Christian, encourage you to wrestle with the fact that Matthew, the writer who saw these things, says these things happened as he describes investigate that empirically. Is it credible evidence? Because if it is, and if you conclude that these things did happen, then there's no wriggle room left for you in your life because he must be God. He must be God. And all that he says is true. He must be God. So that person last week is going to come and look at the empirical evidence to make up their mind. All of it, though, reveals his identity and authority. That's why he did it. Just listen again to Isaiah's prophecies. Be strong, fear not. Behold, one day your God will come. Behold, one day Emmanuel. That's what he literally says, Isaiah. Behold, one day God with us will be. He will come and save you. Then... When he comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people. That's the valley of the shadow of death, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would come and save. 
And you will know that he has come because the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. He will swallow up death forever. He will wipe away tears from our faces. This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. So when Jesus touched these two blind men's eyes, when he lifted the lame man up off his mat, when he unstopped the ears and loosened the tongue of the deaf mute, when he took that child by the hand, then crying out from these acts of compassion and tenderness and astonishing authority and power are these facts that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, that Jesus is God's Messiah, come to save us, and that Jesus is God's King, come to build his everlasting kingdom. It always strikes me that when I preach on the miracles of Jesus, why anyone would not believe. This week I had another conversation with somebody and, and they were, they said to me, do you think I'm a Christian? And I, my answer to that question was, a Christian is someone who believes in their need of forgiveness and that Jesus can forgive them and they turn to him for that forgiveness and the Holy Spirit comes to live in them and it changes their life and they look death in the eye with a confidence, a fear perhaps, but with a confidence that they will come through it and live forever in a new creation and see Jesus in the face. So they said to me, are you saying I'm a Christian or not? And I said, I don't know. Do you believe all that? And then I said to her, what do you make of the miracles? And she's been in a church for 20, 30 years. And she said, I've never dared to think about them face up. It's effectively what she said. And uh, that, that's true, I think, of many people's experience. They just hover on the edge of looking. But they never look. They never consider them. They never weigh them up and say, well, what do I do with this? so overwhelming that he is the Messiah, Emmanuel, come to save us. Unless, of course, Matthew just made it all up, and Mark and Luke and John, and then Matthew gave his life for what he just made up, and that hundreds of thousands, millions of people across the globe, in places like Eurasia, where it's dangerous, believe it, and in this country too. This is what this is all about. Tell them of the man who raised the dead, who cures the sick, who makes the lame walk. Tell them that he has come to forgive your sins 
and reconcile you to God and promise you everlasting life. Now, let me say something secondly about the kingdom of God. Uh, And in doing so, let me ask you to consider what the kingdom of this world is like. What's the kingdom of Scotland like? Or the kingdom of England or the kingdom of whatever country it is in the world. The world in which we live. Now, I want you to contrast the world we live in today with the world that Jesus lived in, the ancient world. The ancient world was a world of incurable illnesses and suffering. It was a world of demonic activity where the devil's destructive power was evident. It was a world, the ancient world where Jesus lived, where nature was inherently dangerous and destructive, where there were droughts and tsunamis and earthquakes. That's the ancient world littered with natural disasters a world of death. And uh, what astonishing progress we have made, and I say this in all sincerity, I discovered this week that the slogan that launched the NHS uh, was safety from the cradle to the grave. How do you remember that? Safety from the cradle to the grave. I immediately thought, what about the bit at the grave? But that's because I'm a minister. And with all the problems of the NHS, it is fantastic. It's wonderful. I've just written to the NHS Trust of the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary telling them that the staff in Ward 201 are just fantastic. And please tell them. I hope they do. If you get sick in Edinburgh today, you're in good hands. And yet, the Royal Infirmary is full of wards which are battling to treat what? Chronic? illness. So you go to the the liver transplant unit in RIE or the kidney transplant unit or the liver disease or the kidney disease or any other disease and it's chronic illness or cancer. I keep telling you about the man who runs Cancer UK in the UK and the professor of oncology at the Royal Marston whom we happen to know. He's a lovely, normal person. And he knows that the slogan, we will beat cancer, is not true. He loves Jesus, and he knows that when he runs out of steam in his research, which is wonderful, and helps people live a better life and a longer life, that only Jesus can raise people from the dead. Now, this week I stood at the graveside of my friend as we buried him, and uh, I said to my wife this week, do you know what's coming on Sunday, and here we go again, death, destruction, and despair. And, uh, but nonetheless, here we were this week again on Wednesday at the graveside of my friend Tom, who was my best friend, I guess, even though he was 90 when he died. And uh, I had this passage in Matthew in my mind because I was preaching on it. And I walked up and down the cemetery and read the headstones. Old people, younger people. And then every line, there was at least one dead child. Do 
just like the ancient world. It's just the same. Humanity cannot answer the problem of death and never will. Now listen to the words that were read at the graveside on Wednesday. Um, It was a beautiful day. The birds were singing. But that didn't disguise the fact that we load a coffin into the ground. And all the gravediggers were there. Curry Cemetery, the gravediggers are great. I always chat away to them, and they're really friendly and stuff. And I wonder, what what do you think? What do you, you get to watch this every day? These words were read as the coffin was loaded into the ground. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And in the Gospels, Martha says, to, Yes, Lord, I believe. Strange words, though, to utter at a graveside, aren't they? Almost a contradiction. Though he die, yet shall he live. So is he dead or is he alive? My friend, Tom. Or, this is just real because I was there, but you can think of many occasions yourselves. Now, remember the words of the ruler to Jesus. My daughter has just died, but... Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. She has just died, but she will live. And what did the minister say on Wednesday at the graveside? Though he die, but shall he live. My daughter has died, but she will live. Though he has died, but he will live. How can that be? Because if Jesus, the same Jesus, who took the child by the hand and raised her to life, is the same Jesus who said these words that we said at the graveside on Wednesday. But isn't there a huge difference between what Matthew records happened and what we saw happening in the graveyard on Wednesday? Because Tom is still dead. Jesus did not take his hand and lift him up. But he will. He will return, and his kingdom will come in all its glory and its fullness. It is a matter of time. Now, you might not be a Christian, and you might be thinking, I'm trying to find a way around a problem. In the end, it will all be okay. But Jesus never said that he had come to this earth to take children and dead people by the hand and raise them up on this earth. He said he came that we might be reconciled to God through the forgiveness of our sins. And when he comes again in the new creation, he will raise those who have died in faith in him with bodies that are incorruptible. And as I uh, stood in that uh, cemetery in Curry, which means the place of sleep. That's what the word cemetery means. You know, when you read on gravestones, not dead but asleep? If that's a Christian, that is profoundly true. I was thinking, and I had a kind of a reverent thought, I was thinking, I wonder what these gravediggers will do when Jesus comes and all the graves will... And what they'll do, should have asked them. And that's not sentiment. 
it's truth. How do you know it's true? Because Jesus went in to the bedroom of that girl and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Because Jesus died on a cross and was laid cold out in a tomb and God lifted him up and he was raised. These miracles that Jesus performed when he walked on the earth reveal his identity and his authority and the fact that his kingdom has come. And when his kingdom comes in all of its fullness at the end of the age, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the dead will live, there will be no mourning, there will be no tears, there will be no singers at funerals, there will be no undertakers, there will be no doctors, there will be no graveyards, there will be no grave diggers. And uh, as we stood at the graveside on Wednesday, I, I began to smile. You can't smile really at a funeral. It's a bad idea. But what a glorious, glorious, glorious message that is. What a Savior. And our commission in this age, that is until the Lord Jesus comes again, is to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Is that a message worth telling on the streets of this city? I mean, people will say they don't want to hear it, but you know and I know that in their heart of hearts, if you have the bottle at least to explain that to them. I mean, why not open with a line? Do you want to live forever? Do you want an answer to death? How do you feel about your funeral? I mean, that will get a reaction. Have you thought about your funeral? I always ask that at a funeral service and everyone looks up at that point. Why don't you ask somebody that whom you know well? Now, what does Jesus promise us in this age? Here's the manifesto of Jesus. Manifestos are in our minds. We're hearing them every day at the moment. I don't believe any of them, really. We're going to just, we're going to eradicate death. Yeah, all we need is 20 squillion billion pounds. No, you're not. It's always fatuous, isn't it, when a politician says we're going to eliminate crime. I don't think so. What's Jesus' manifesto? You will not be free of suffering in this life. That's what the gospel says, so don't believe anybody. That doesn't mean Jesus can't heal, and sometimes he does wonderfully. He didn't promise it, though. You will not be free physically healed in this age. You will die. But I can forgive your sins. I can reconcile you to God. I can promise you that if you believe in me, you will face no everlasting condemnation. I can promise you security for your soul. I promise you that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you and you will not be afraid. I get to see that promise coming true again and again and again and again in people's lives. I promise you Christian fellowship, a Christian family. I promise to be with you in your suffering. I promise that when you die, your soul will be with me 
and there will not be an instant of time when you are not in my presence because my spirit lives in you and when you die, the spirit that lives in you which has captured your soul will be with me. And I promise that your body will be raised and you will live forever with me looking at me in the face in the everlasting kingdom of God, a perfect new creation. Now, is that or is that not a message worth going out to tell? This week I had a conversation with a young man who had seen and experienced a lot more suffering than most people of his age. And I asked him, do you still want to be a minister? He's training to be a minister. And he said to me, I cannot think of doing anything else. Why? Not because he's especially gifted, although he is. Not because we're leaning on him and persuading him to do it, although we are. But because he has seen into the abyss of human suffering. And he knows there is an answer to that. So he wants to tell people. And in your area of ministry, your mission field where you work, where you live, the area of the city where God has placed you. In parts of the city where there are no churches yet and there need to be and so we must plant churches, is that a message worth telling? Sometimes I think we, we go straight in with the jugular and we go straight in, would you like to come to Christianity Explored, which is fine, but that's not the gospel. Would you like to do Alpha Christ? That's not the gospel. The gospel is forgiveness. Why not start your conversation with do you ever think about death? Do you ever think about suffering? You know, does it not frighten you, frighten you, frighten you? Ask them that. And there must be a response to that kind of question. Finally, responding to Jesus. Chapters 8 and 9 through to verse 34 are all preparatory material. Uh, for the concluding part of the section, 9.35 to 10.42. And in the concluding part of the section, Jesus instructs his disciples and us for mission. That will start next week. Um, that great passage next week, the harvest fields are there, but the laborers to bring in the harvest are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send out workers. That's next week. And all the stuff before, all through here, is to give us confidence for mission. Confidence and encouragement. And one aspect of that is that we need confidence because when we tell people about Jesus, he will often, they, they, they say, no. Let me say this. People will either believe in him or reject him in the end. We go and tell them, and as we speak of Jesus, as we explain the message of the gospel, people will either believe in him or reject him. Now, we've got to go and tell. Jesus says we've got to go and tell. And it's his means or his way of eliciting from them a response to his message. We have to go and tell. And in the end, they'll believe in him or they'll reject him. It might not work out like that in a space and time moment, but over time, we'll see it. They'll either believe in him or they'll say no. Yes or no. Yes or no. You either die believing in him or rejecting him. Now, look at the positive responses of faith in these passages. The ruler, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. It is astonishing what he says, simple, direct trust in Jesus. She's dead, but she'll live if you touch her. And the woman who comes up behind Jesus to touch his clothes, well, she's not so clear, is she? 
It's a bit like what the phrase we use, touch wood. Superstition. She says, I'm going to sneak up behind him and touch his cloak. He's not even going to know, and then I'll be fine. That's not exactly somebody who's crystal clear on the finer points of the theology of atonement. Just touches him. It's weak. It's superstitious faith. And the blind men who displayed a faith that brought them to Jesus for healing, but they didn't obey afterwards. He says, don't tell people. They told everybody. And the mute demon-possessed man is too weak to articulate any faith for himself. Now, what strikes you about their faith? In most cases, it is weak. It's weak. It's weak. Now, I'm not saying that people who have some kind of vague faith or sense of God um, are going to uh, be Christians. Uh, remember the question I was asked, are you saying this person is not a Christian? This is what a Christian is. You go through all these things. You need to know that you need forgiven. You need to know that Jesus is the one. You need to know you are estranged from God. You need to want a world that is not this world. But you do not need to know or recite or explain a creed. You do not become a Christian by reciting a creed. You become a Christian by faith in Him. Now, of course, the creeds point to Him. You become a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ. And to all of these genuine expressions of faith, and that's what Matthew intends us to take from this, to all these simple expressions of trust in the Lord Jesus, weak or strong, Jesus responds with the same degree of mercy. I think the hardest question I get asked as a minister is from people whose loved ones have died and they've never shown any sign of Christian response. I mean, you'll be aware of that. What, would, what do I say to them? Should I say to them, it's all right in the end for everybody? That's not what Jesus says, so I can't say that to them. What I do say to them is that if they, in the last moments of their life, and they must have needed to hear the gospel to do this, you can't reach out to Jesus if you do not know that you need to or have been told that you need to. If in the last moments of their life, with a genuine sorrow and contrition and heartfelt awareness of estrangement and sinfulness before a holy God whom you are about to meet, you reach out with genuine faith, needing forgiveness. You may not articulate it with the words of a creed. Then the Lord Jesus will take hold of their hand. Now, that's playing with fire, but it happens. It's happened once in my experience that I've seen physically when someone just as they were dying, in a sense, took hold of God. But that's playing with fire. 
which is why it's good to face people with their funeral. Now, my lines at funerals are becoming... um, Well, the great thing about funerals now, if, if you go to humanist funerals, people are so fundamentally shocked when the celebrant says that the person has not actually died... they just kind of move to another kind of sphere of what it means to be human. And everyone goes, well, so what's in the box? A dead body? So at funeral services, I I say, my job today is to encourage you all to do two things, to acknowledge that someone has died and to think about your own funeral. And their heads all come up. Because there are those who reject Jesus. And uh, we see it in two ways in these passages. Those who just want him to go away, which is uh, we've seen in chapter 8. They just don't want anything to do with him. They want him to go away. But then there are those who will not accept that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised King. And they attribute his power and authority not to God but to the devil And the last two verses are very sobering indeed. When the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel, amongst the people of God, that is. But the Pharisees, the leaders of the people of God, said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. What a terrible conclusion to reach about the Lord Jesus. And the people who reach that conclusion about the Lord Jesus are often religious people. I mean, I don't think on the streets of Edinburgh today there are people who aren't religious people saying that Jesus is demonic. I mean, at worst, they'll say he's a great moral teacher. But not to submit to the authority of Jesus. When you're an insider to deny his authority is to put yourself in the position of these Pharisees. In the next chapter, Jesus uses this phrase, which I think is very powerful. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Who's not offended by me. You know, in in my experience as a minister, there's a word that I look for to give me the confidence that someone is a real Christian. It's one word in conversation. What do you think it is? Jesus. Spot on. It's a sure giveaway. You either love his name or you're offended by it. You listen to clergymen, how many times they use the word Jesus. Not Christ, not the Lord, but Jesus. Jesus. There's an old lady in the church who's become a Christian in her last years of life, and every sentence has the word Jesus. 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 Is that a word that you're comfortable with? 
Do you love it? Do you love him? Jesus. Right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for these very powerful accounts in the Gospels that bring us humbly to Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would honor that word and love that word, love his name, and not be offended by him. We pray, Lord, for our confidence to go and tell this message. Help us to be direct with people that they might be saved. And save our souls, Lord Jesus, if we're not yet saved. Help us to reach out to Jesus. And if anyone here is so doing, reach out to them, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit and take their hand and change their life. We ask in his name. Amen.